Chapter Nine of Miss Angelus by Gertrude Hall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Nine. Don't get up till you feel like it. Teresa had bidden her, and Grace had been happy to imagine herself in a fairy palace where such things could be done without the compunctions that accompany indulgences of the kind in lesser places. She came to herself at a faint rattle of dishes and fragrance of coffee. Sita was standing near, holding a tray. Having piled pillows at Grace's back and placed her breakfast on her knees, the girl seated herself on the foot of the bed. Don't apologize, she dismissed Grace's polite phrases. We all do it. If you sit up late, you can't be expected to get up early. In this family, if you stay in bed long enough, somebody or other brings you something to eat. Mother sees to it. Sita's eyes were wandering around the room. Weren't you tired, too? Grace asked her. Weren't you up as late as I? How did you wake up so much earlier? I guess you'd wake up if you slept with Zip in the room next to Aunt Dolores. Zip has a way of gritting her teeth that's perfectly maddening. Then, all of a sudden, she'll double up like a jackknife, snapping shut, and land her coconut in the middle of your stomach. Take that, along with Aunt Dolores's sawing wood all night. Why, Miss Sita, what a shame! Don't you care? I suppose I'll get used to it. Sita's melting dark eyes continued to wander around the room with an expression that could be interpreted as marking regret mingled with a sense of injury. Grace's long, sound morning sleep had done her a world of good. She had walked with nerves composed. More, indeed, than that. She had waked with something very like elation taking the place of those creepy, causeless midnight misgivings. She was going to take possession of her new world in the manner of one equal, through the spirit, to all its problems, tasks, and encounters. She rejoiced in the mere multifariousness of life as it now offered itself, affording endless objects for the exercise of her faculties. It was, with her, one of those mornings of youth when the novice girded for adventure, is lifted upon the consciousness, or the illusion, of illimitable strength, capacity to provide out of deep funds within him for whatever chance may come. In this mood, rich and spendthrift, the desire to endear herself to Claire's people without exception made her reckless of what there might be to pay. An especial magnanimity was in order, anyhow, in the case of one who, like Sita, had given evidence of eagerness on her side. Was this your room before I came? Grace asked. Sita stared at her a moment. Yes, it was. How did you know? You don't seem quite used to Zip and Aunt Dolores. You're right. I'd had this room since Emma got married the first time i ever did have a room to myself but of course i don't mind giving it up to you i don't mind because i like you 
Don't tell mother I let on. My dear Miss Sita, quite the greatest favor you could do me would be to come back to your own room, if you wouldn't mind my sharing it. I am a quiet sleeper, I believe, and you know that I haven't many clothes and things. There will be plenty of room for both of us, and I shall be so much happier. You certainly must come. Do you mean it? Oh, Miss Inglis, what a perfect darling you are. Sita jumped up to squeeze her in a joyous bear hug. You're lots nicer than I thought anybody could be, if you aren't our kind. You're sure now you want me? You know, I shall have to tell mother you insisted. When Clarence heard that evening of this insistence of Grace's, What made you do that, O oh, amiable one? he inquired. You will find it, to use one of your own expressions, direful. But Teresa, upon Grace's saying the proper thing, had raised no objection being indeed glad to have her child stop fussing to her in private about the burdens unfairly put upon her because she was younger and better natured than pinky or rebecca now when exactly are you children thinking of getting married teresa asked point-blank that same evening at a moment when she and clarence and grace were by themselves soon said clarence pressing grace's hand devoutly sooner soonest grace set the day grace stammered a little and saying i have always thought that a year was the shortest but an outcry from claire and teresa wonderfully of one mind and one voice cast her back deeply blushing into silence did you hear the hard-hearted little thing cried teresa i never knew anything like it what have you got against the poor boy a year did you say a year why what do you want to wait for isn't everything all right come now grace give us a human answer what do you say red i say that a year is all right and about what i should have expected from the pale rose lips of the well-brought-up miss inglis but to fall in with it would look like a powerful lack of enthusiasm on my part try again grace take a tip don't make it a day over three months yes yes agreed teresa three months is more than enough the idea and three short months too so as to get it into june june is the month for weddings say the end of june that will give us time for everything grace had arrived at a theory that she must hold her own against claire sometimes when disposed to be submissive she made herself stiff and wayward taught by intuition that she was thus finally more delightful to him she would have liked in this case to be obstinate but the fact that she was to be a guest of the overcomes until her marriage made it seem indelicate to set a term deemed by her hostess so extremely long whose prerogative is it supposed to be to set the day she asked with a sparkle of that sprightliness which she was learning to affect do i remember rightly that it is the bride's well then i will be reasonable however i won't claim it entire we will do before marriage claire as nice people do after it 
each go halfway in making concessions. So we'll have the wedding in half the length of time I proposed, and in twice the time proposed by you, that is to say, in six months. Are you suited? Teresa accepted the compromise as fair and made calculations. That will take us into September. Six months from the beginning of your engagement will take us to the second week in September. You'll have to be married then from our summer home on Jaffa Road. Well, we can give you just as pretty a wedding there as here. The family moves out to Jaffa Road the end of June, and the men come down by train every afternoon. We'll have to set about getting your things at once, my child, so as to be through before July, for we shan't want to be running back and forth in hot weather. In her aspiration to establish charming relations between herself and the different members of his family, Grace received small support from Claire. His attitude was that of saying, What makes you bother? Let it work out as it will. You're a lot too good for them. He was immensely candid with regard to his family, calling them whatever names at the moment best represented his meaning, however unflattering it might be. Grace suspected him, none the less, of a strong clan feeling of its own kind. She continued tactfully, trying to show liking and make herself liked. Aside from Sita, whose conquest was really too easy, she felt least shyness with Dolores, toward whom she was impelled by a kind of pity, pity on fairly intangible grounds, for, although the off-hand manner of the family seemed out of keeping when applied to Dolores, this was not sufficient to create pity. She put into her smile a double dose of honey when bending it on Dolores. The depressing lady seemed not to care to talk, yet must like, as everybody likes, to be the object of a distinguishing and appreciative smile. Meeting her on the way to Mass, Dolores went daily to Mass. Grace would say ingratiatingly, Pray for me, too? At which Dolores would bow assent in entire seriousness, and Grace fancied, make it a point of conscience, so to pray. Several times Grace had seen, on the stairs, a large, middle-aged woman carrying covered dishes on a tray before the repetition of this event had suggested the question, Is anybody ill? Who lives upstairs? She was with Dolores, Dolores returning from Mass, when her curiosity came to a point, and she asked the question prompted by the sight of the servant approaching with her tray. It is Miss Overcome who lives upstairs, Dolores answered. Aunt Miranda, she elucidated. Grace remembered at once that Miranda, sister of Jesse and William and Sylvanus, one of the four orphans distributed and dispersed, who by this time must be an old, old woman. And is she ill? She cannot walk or stand. She never leaves her room. Good morning, Nora. Grace's eyes took in more consciously the face of the large woman in a blue-striped gingham as she passed them, 
and she liked its broad kindness, its small pretty eyes like a child's, even its button nose, comically counterbalanced by a button of gray hair at the back of the head. She expressed to Teresa that day her desire to be made acquainted with Marinda. Already, when she was much younger, Grace had discovered, as one of the painful things that a person learns in life, if he be at all observant or sensitive, that there is among people in their strength and health a disposition to neglect the old. Also, that old people pathetically love remembrance and affection from the young. This perception had created in her a habit of regard for them, in part ideal of chivalry, in part honest tenderness. Teresa looked at her when she made the request, as if she thought it supererogatory. Her glance intimated that Grace would not find the enterprise rewarding. If it had been anything in the nature of a treat, would it not have been proposed? But she readily consented. Come on, she said, and led the way. They climbed to the top of the house. Teresa knocked at a door. The room they entered was so different from her unconscious expectation that Grace made a small, unguarded sound of surprise. It was as if a magic carpet had transported them, in a twinkling, from the city to an old-fashioned country house, filled with the countrywoman's old-fashioned belongings. There was even the faintly musty smell that is exhaled from old things. Near the embrasure, formed by one of the mansard windows, stood a high-backed chair, covered with a faded goods print with once gay flowers, and furnished with projections designed to shield the ears from draughts. In this sat an ancient lady, with her feet raised on a stool, and a shawl tucked around her up to the waist. "'Well, Aunt Marinda, how do you do today?' Teresa asked in bracing, cheerful tones, which she sharpened to penetrate the dull ear of age. I've brought Red's young lady up to see you. Oh, Red's young lady. Aunt Miranda spoke in a voice unexpectedly deep, and after a moment of vagueness, took the hand that Grace at once extended with her pretty smile. She looked from one to the other, as if still in doubt. Then, yes, I remember, she nodded. Her name is Grace, Grace Ingalls. Oh, Grace, same as the other. Aunt Marinda, I guess you aren't quite awake yet. Did we break into your nap? See, here's a letter from Sarah I've brought for you to read. I'm going to leave it for you to look at when you're ready. She's got a lot to say about Belle's baby. They're going to call it Sally Marinda. Aren't you pleased? Grace was happy to feel that, with Teresa at hand, there would fall upon her no obligation to talk. She could talk so much better another time, when she came up here alone. This strange, delightful room, strange, through its mere existence in the same house as the ambitious apartments below, delightful and being so like something in a story-book. In a corner stood a solid four-post bed, with colored patchwork spreading over its mound of feathers. The chair she had taken 
was an old wooden one with worn seat and rungs. On the floor lay braided rag carpets dim with long use. An iron stove with little gothic windows shed that even caressing heat which old people so much prefer to fresh air. In which details the room was not unlike rooms Grace had seen before. What made the place curious was to find it in so much that ordinarily would have been relegated to the storeroom, not to say the rubbish heap. Piled in the corners, on the deep window sills, on the old lounge and under it, were boxes and boxes, bundles and bundles, sheaves of yellowed newspapers and magazines, picture frames laid one on top of another, with here and there revealed such private and personal treasures as a stuffed black and tan terrier, a bunch of ghost-white flowers, bridal or funeral, stiffened and eternized by a preparation of wax. The eye received from these promiscuous stacks of portable property an impression of irregularity, but not exactly of disorder, for the things were systematized and condensed as far as possible, so as to leave a fair remainder of space to live in. It might be thought that when Aunt Marinda transferred herself to her brother's house in town, it had been too late to wean her from the familiar possessions. She had brought along the accumulations of a life, bestowed them temporarily, then grown accustomed to the angles and shadows they made. Perhaps there had been some idea, at first, of making selection, reduction, destruction. Perhaps her great affliction had overtaken her before it could be carried into effect. However that might be, there stood the dim, unsorted things. One glimpsed them on top of the wardrobe. One divined them under the bed, hidden by the valance. Teresa tilted forward and backward in an old wooden rocking chair painted pale yellow and embellished with pale purple grapes, and cheerily fed the old relative with news of the numerous family. Aunt Miranda was no doubt interested. Could one conceive an aged countrywoman not refreshed by a good string of gossip? But she did little to keep the conversation alive. Teresa did not wait for her. She gave to the occasion an effect of entire social success by reeling off her ready talk alone, with hardly an interruption. Alonzo is thinking of building. Did Dolores tell you? Carrie wants him to buy the house. Her brother wants to sell, but Alonzo doesn't see it, and I don't blame him. It's gloomy, and it's cramped. We're watching to see who will come out ahead, whether she'll get her way or he his. I guess it'll end in their building. I guess it's safe to put your money on the overcome side of the house. Grace, meanwhile, could study the old lady's face without rudeness. She perceived in her some resemblance to the pictures of her brother, but was reminded more of someone else. She had seen before that bony, elongated face with the large eye sockets and the great dignity. That Aunt Miranda should be paralyzed seemed to Grace the more tragic in that she had, to the most casual observation, a great deal of character, and must have been purposeful, powerful, active. There was something mannish about her, 
with her gruff chest-voice and bit of beard, so that the trifling headgear of black lace and velvet, worn by old ladies to hide their thin spot, seemed in her case a foolish, impertinent affair. Grace found herself immensely, respectfully sorry for Aunt Miranda, not the less so because Aunt Miranda looked strong in patience and able to bear her lot. From the serious-looking black book on the little table at her elbow, she presumed that Aunt Miranda was religious. But religious as you might be, and possessed of superhuman comforts, it seemed to Grace a sad thing to be old, to be at the end of things. Love finished, work finished, hope abbreviated, nothing from day to day to thrill you, the sun gone dim with the dimness of your eyes, nothing to look forward to but the chilly, uncongenial mysteries of the next world, and those only to be arrived at after that throw, that transition, the thought of which is so repulsive to warm young flesh and blood. A great deal of sympathy was due to the old, it seemed, to Grace. Well, Aunt Miranda, Teresa talked glibly on, but an intimation was in her cadence that she approached the point of winding up. The wedding day is set for the second week in September, so you see we have plenty to do before going to Jaffa Road this season. Red's house has all got to be made ready, too. The carpenters and painters are only just out of it. They'll be busy days for us, from this onward till the wedding day. At reference to the wedding, Aunt Miranda's eyes turned toward Grace, and Grace took the occasion to introduce into her smile the final essence of all her thoughts on old age. The two let their glances rest upon each other with directness and simplicity. Rays from faded blue fires at the back of shadowy caverns met with the gold-brown light of clear woodland wells. You seem to be a nice little thing. Aunt Miranda came out, addressing herself to Grace, and breaking unceremoniously across Teresa's chatter to do it. What makes you want to marry into this family? Well, I like that, Teresa burst out laughing. Who are you hitting, Aunt? The family or Grace? You do have a way of saying things. She did not seem anything but amused, but... When she had caught Grace's eye, she shot a glance at her, such as people exchange behind the back of the demented, and got up as if she felt it time to go. We don't want to stay long enough to tire you, Aunt. Good-bye. I hope the boys below don't make noise enough to disturb you. If they do, you must let me know. Send me word by Nora any time there's anything I can do for you. As she held out her hand to take Aunt Miranda's in farewell, Grace was re-impressed by the likeness she had noted. Who was it that Aunt Miranda resembled, so severe as she looked, but also gentle and possibly a little cracked? Who but her dear old friend, and her father's particular favorite, that various knight of the Mancha, Don Quixote? On the way downstairs, Teresa said, Isn't she a freak? You never can tell what she'll be like. Some days you'll find her in a sort of daze, like today, when she gets all mixed up and doesn't know what she's dreamed and what is so. Once you know it, 
you're all right. Sometimes, though, she has scolding fits, when, my conscience, you want to keep clear of her. They're the reason that some of the family, Red, for instance, never go near her. When that's on her, she appears to have a grudge against the lot of us. It's her mind failing, of course. The girls go up from time to time, but they hate it so. I don't make them. I sit with her a good deal myself, though, and so does Dolores, and Sylvanus goes up there nearly every evening. Well, lunacy isn't catching, thank goodness, Claire said cheerfully to Grace, when she had told him of her visit to his aunt. But I wouldn't waste much time on the old girl. She won't know the difference, and I don't see what good you can get out of it. End of chapter 9